Friends, uh, you have hope which lasts, given as a promise from God through Jesus. Amen. So who are Moses and Elijah? Uh, why was Jesus glowing like a lighthouse up on top of this mountain in our gospel reading? There are a few of us today for whom I know the, the story of Jesus' life is still not super familiar. And there are others here today who I know have heard Jesus' life retold in the church year and the pattern of our worship through for many years, right, including this particular incident. Yet, whichever of those two camps you're in, I, I'm going to bet that you may be asking those questions and some others. Right? They're questions that I ask. This is the only the second year I've preached on the Festival of Transfiguration, and this is, admittedly, a weird episode in the life of Christ. What exactly does it all mean? One thing we walk away from this event understanding clearly is that Jesus is someone glorious and holy. He's everything our last song proclaimed him to be, Lord of creation, Son of God. He shines brighter than all the angels in the sky. All true, all clearly understandable through this event, we see Jesus' glory, Jesus' majesty on full display here. But our last song also called Jesus another name, Beautiful Savior. And today I want to draw out what those words mean together, because what we really need to take away from Jesus' transfiguration is, he is beautiful because he is Savior. So this story picks up with the words, after six days. We spent our last three weeks in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but the six days aren't referencing that having happened six days before. We've actually made a big time jump. It's a year or more in Jesus' ministry between last week and today. We were in Matthew chapter 5 last week, now we're in Matthew 17. What did we miss? Well, after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he told his followers that the laws they knew, don't murder, don't commit adultery, were not being fully explained to them, Jesus began to experience opposition from the religious establishment of his time. Jesus taught that God wanted, with his laws, to govern not only people's actions, but their hearts. Do not murder rules out not just murder, but also spite and contempt. It commands that we bless those who persecute us. Do not commit adultery is extended by Jesus beyond just physical infidelity to unfaithful, impure desire. This message antagonized the religious establishment, people such as the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, because Jesus preached a law which no one can obey. Their theology, on the other hand, explicitly presumed that if God commands something, humans must have the capacity to obey. God would not give us a command that we couldn't follow, was their thinking. It is often our thinking as well. We assume that we can, if we can settle our own consciences by doing what is right as best as we can, God will be pleased. Jesus' teaching runs counter to that. His call to everyone is for a life of perfect holiness. We ought not let our consciences be settled by less. It wasn't that, though, that infuriated the religious establishment. There was a conflict there, certainly, but in the chapters that we skipped over, what really sets off the Pharisees is the way that Jesus lives day to day. He does not practice his preaching in the way they would expect. John the Baptist had preached the same message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, he had said. He called for holiness in everyone's lives. And when these religious establishment leaders came out to him, he called them a brood of vipers. But John to his credit in their eyes, seemed to live up to his own preaching of holiness. Again, in their eyes. He lived alone in the desert. 
He ate wild food. He made his own clothes out of animal skins. He seemed to be taking his message seriously. Jesus, in their eyes, did not. He ate and he drank at the tables of tax collectors and sinners. He associated with people who were known lawbreakers. He did not follow the traditions which the Pharisees had built up around God's law. They had developed extra rules on the Sabbath, for instance. God said, rest on the Sabbath, and so they developed a rule stating precisely how far someone could walk and call it leisure versus a length that they considered walking uh, work. Jesus did not follow these traditions. He walked where he wanted to walk on the Sabbath, finding rest not in scrupulous adherence to tradition, but in leisurely contemplation of God's beautiful creation. So the religious establishment began to murmur about Jesus. This man is no prophet, no true teacher. He may preach about the law, but does he really practice it? He defies the traditions which our people have followed for generations. He eats with sinners. And so even as Jesus' popularity grew, the opposition to him grew also. It's at this point that we get to our story. Jesus takes three of his 12 disciples, Peter and a pair of brothers, James and John, off to a mountain by themselves. Now, this wasn't uncommon. Jesus often gave these three opportunities to sit with him and to see him working by themselves. But what happened on the mountain was like nothing they had ever seen. Jesus shining like the sun, Moses and Elijah, these two long dead heroes of their faith. A cloud covers them, a voice booms forth, all of it full of meaning and symbolism for them. Again, maybe one question you asked as we read these words of this account earlier, though. Who are Moses and Elijah? These were two of God's prophets who had come before Jesus. We heard about Moses in our first reading today, and in our second. In the history of Israel, Moses had been God's chosen agent through whom the law, God's commands for human life, would be given to Israel. In the book of Exodus, Moses went up on a mountain called Sinai into a cloud where God met with him and gave him stone tablets on which the law was written. And when Moses came down from the mountain with that law, we heard in our first reading, his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. We're meant to see echoes of Moses' life in the transfiguration here. Jesus up on a mountain, shining like the sun. Elijah was also there on this mountain. He lived 500 years later than Moses, 900 years before Jesus. Man, I just have to take an aside there, right? Sometimes we Americans forget how great the time span of world history really is and how tiny a place in that history our little nation occupies. The entire independent life of our nation could fit in the spaces between the lives of each of these men in history. Elijah was known in Jewish history for his zeal for God and for God's law. Elijah also met God on a mountaintop. Elijah presided over the executions of at least 450 false prophets on one occasion. These two prophets of God, zealous for God's law, appear here on the mountaintop with Jesus. And their appearance told the disciples something important. Jesus' preaching and teaching was in line with what these men preached and taught during their ministries. If Peter, James, and John had any doubts about the way Jesus conducted his life based on these murmurs from the religious establishment, the appropriateness of his interactions with sinners, the appearance of Moses and Elijah put those doubts to rest. And maybe that's part of Peter's strange suggestion here. Where our Bible reads this morning, Peter said to Jesus, verse 4, in Greek it's really something more like, Peter felt compelled to say something. 
See, he had been hearing the slander and the whispers about his teacher whom he loved, and he knew, ooh, if we can set you up in a tent here, Jesus, with Moses and with Elijah, everyone can see that these two zealous men of God affirm your ministry, then no one will be able to badmouth you. Everyone will have to recognize that your teaching is authoritative. It's correct. Because Moses and Elijah back you up, Jesus. Now, there's a detail, though, that we're not given here in Matthew's Gospel, but which is added when we read Mark's Gospel, because he also tells the Transfiguration story. Mark was not one of the twelve disciples. He was not one of these three. But later in life, he was one of Peter's close associates. And so Mark's Gospel, we tend to believe, is most likely based on Peter's recollections of Jesus' life. And Mark, telling Peter's perspective, adds the note that Peter was scared as this all unfolded. Peter was scared as he saw Jesus shining like the sun, as he saw these two revered prophets of God appear to talk with Jesus. And so Peter suggests that they do the same thing which was done to the radiant Moses when he came down his mountain. He wants to cover Jesus up. Jesus, Peter is saying, it would be great if these guys could stay around to prove your ministry's validity, but you guys are terrifying. And we need to cover you up so people can just take a little peek be satisfied, and then run for the hills. Why? Why? Why was Peter scared? Why were the Israelites scared when Moses came down from the mountain? What Peter saw, what the Israelites saw, was the holiness of God, God's perfection, God's glory, reflected on Moses' face, shining forth brilliantly in Jesus' transfiguration. And when God's majesty, glory, holiness is shown forth to sinners, it ought to make us run for the hills. God gave Moses the law to take to the people. The law revealed God's holiness because it revealed the holiness to which God called his people. God is perfect and he wants his people to be perfect. What a majestic message. What a glorious message. What a terrifying message. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul called Moses' ministry in our second reading? The ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Paul says that the ministry which Moses performed, bringing God's law to the people, to God's people, was a ministry which brought death, God's glorious, majestic Holy law brings death. We should fear it. If you are not afraid of God's law after spending three weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't understand God's law. You don't understand the claim he makes on your life. You don't understand the depth of your sin and the height of his holiness. If our reaction to God's law is anything less than fear and terror like the Israelites felt, we have failed to understand it. So why weren't you afraid? What gave you the gumption this morning to walk into a house where God's law is preached? A place where God comes to meet us through his word. What made you think you could come to hear the word of the holy God and live to tell the tale? The disciples were scared by everything that was going on, but when that cloud covered the mountaintop, and the voice of God spoke directly to them. That was it. They threw themselves down on the ground, horrified, fearful, thoroughly aware of their sin and their guilt before God. And then Jesus, 
comes and touches them. Get up, guys. Don't be afraid. And they get up and they look around and it's Jesus alone in front of them. And they make their way down the mountain and Jesus tells them something important. Don't talk about this until after my transfer, uh, until after my resurrection. All of that glory, that holiness, that majesty doesn't make Jesus beautiful. It makes him terrifying. He is holy, we are not. If Peter, James, and John had told everyone about what they saw, it would do one of two things. People would scoff at it, people would be terrified by it. Jesus wants them to understand, his disciples, he wants them to understand that what makes him beautiful to people, what leads people to trust him, is not his holiness, it is his love. It is his death on behalf of sinners. It is his death-defeating resurrection. These are the things which people, which Jesus says, people need to know about him before they hear about his glory. They need to know about his gospel. Jesus is beautiful because he is Savior. Friend, you and I do not deserve to stand before Jesus and to be received by him. Our sin caused him to die. The things which we think no one can see in our hearts, envy, lust, contempt, and spite, render us unfit for God's presence. We cannot approach him. So he comes to us. As he came to Peter, James, and John and touched them and told them to stand up before him and to trust him. That's what don't be afraid is. To not fear is to trust. So Jesus comes to you. He washes you and works your adoption into God's family through baptism. Get up, don't be afraid, Jesus says. He comes to you in his supper, his body and blood given for your assurance, your strengthening. Get up, don't be afraid. He sends you a preacher to bring you his word of forgiveness and life and salvation. And Paul says, if Moses' ministry which brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is this ministry that brings righteousness? The law is glorious. The gospel, far more glorious. The law proclaims God is holy. The gospel proclaims God is Savior. He is beautiful because he is your Savior. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Amen.